Greetings, family, and welcome to The Journey Continues, a Cities United podcast. My name is Anthony Smith, and I'll be your host each month as we take this journey together to reimagine public safety. Cities United is a national network that supports mayors, community leaders, and young leaders from all across the country who are committed to creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for young black men and boys and their families. On each episode, you will hear from key stakeholders from throughout our network who will help us examine the issues that impact young black men and boys' lives, while also helping us identify key solutions and best practices that will help us reimagine public safety and truly create spaces that are safe, healthy, and hopeful for all. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Um, this is Renee Jocelyn and I am with Philanthropy Unbound. I am the principal and I'm so excited to be having this Black Philanthropy Month conversation. I am joined by Anthony Smith, the Executive Director of Cities United. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Good <laughs> to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So um, Black Philanthropy Month is celebrating 10 years, um, and it just seems like the time has flown by so quickly, but Cities United is also celebrating 10 years. So we thought it'd be great to have this conversation to talk about the culture and the work and everything that's happening and be able to then watch the tra trajectory of philanthropy in black community, as well as great organizations doing really good work. And so before we get started, I just wanna encourage everyone to please um, put some um, conversations in the chat, ask questions, we're gonna be pulling those up later um, and be able to just have conversation amongst you all. So even if you don't have questions, you see somebody that you know, just like, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. Maybe this could also facilitate some connections that have gone awry. So Anthony, I guess I wanna start with, cause you know, I know a little bit about Cities United. You know, we've been connected for maybe about a year now. And ever since we've been connected, I've been so excited about the story and the work of Cities United. But I would love for you to please talk a little bit about the origin story. You know, what's the mission? How did Cities United come about? And any other tidbits you want us to know about who you guys are and who you are. <laughs> no, I appreciate that, Renee. Thank you. And really excited to be here and uh, thankful for our partnership with Philanthropy Unbound and your, you and your team do amazing work, but also just to come in a space and celebrate two, uh, this, these two moments of Black philanthropy, but also Cities United, which is a, a Black-led, Black-staffed organization really working to create safe and healthy communities for young Black men and boys and their families. Uh, so this is a, a great moment for us to come together and have this conversation. So really, really thankful for that. Uh, so Cities United, as you said, has been around for 10 years. Uh, started with a conversation with former Mayor Nutter of Philadelphia and Dr. Bell, William C. Bell, who's the president and CEO of Casey Family Programs. Dr. Bell happened to be in Philadelphia visiting and doing some work and had a conversation with Mayor Nutter. And Mayor Nutter was really concerned, which he should have been, uh, that they were losing too many young boys in his community. And he had no place as a mayor to really go and get support and think through strategies around how to change that trajectory and how to create a different space. So the two of them had a couple more conversations and thought about who they should partner with. They brought in Mayor Landrew, former mayor of New Orleans, uh, brought in Sean Dove, who was running, uh, who was at uh, Open Society at the foundation, but then ran, uh, ended up running the campaign for Black Mill Achievement, uh, which now is the Corporation for Black Mill Achievement. And then they also brought in the National League of Cities 
but with Leanne, Leon Andrews and Clarence and really was thinking about how do we create this space uh, for mayors uh, and, and really build out a vision to say, how do we reduce the epidemic of homicides and shootings of young black men and boys ages 14 to 24 and have by the year 2025. So when we started Cities United, we were losing 14 young men every day in that age group. So every day when we went to sleep, 14 young men were gone that day and when we woke up. So it was, a, for us, that's a public health crisis. For us, that's the state of an emergency. And for us, it's all hands on deck to figure out how we do better uh, for our young men and boys and was really looking at not only how do we put programs and strategies in place, but how do we create a comprehensive plan and strategy that will not only interrupt the cycle of violence, but dismantle the systems that create that environment and then also just invest in new strategies and new ways of being. Uh, so over the 10 years, we've morphed from an initiative uh, until 2015 when I came on board as the first executive director and first employee uh, and then started building our team from there. We went from a one-person shop to four with Althea, uh, Charles, uh, and Q was our, our team for a while, Aquaniqua, Carthen, uh, and Althea Dryden and Charles Booker was the team. And we were just working, trying to figure this out across the country. Uh, when we came on board, there were about 60 cities that had signed on. And since that time, we've worked with over a total of 130 who are all thinking about this work. So a lot of work has happened over the last 10 years and, and a lot of great people have been a part of the team and are still a part of the team. Uh, we are now at about 17 staff members uh, and growing because we know we've got to grow to really meet the need and the demand of where we are and what's going on. Wow, that's great. You touched on a point that I, um, I want to bring up. And when you talked about it started with you and then you brought on Althea, and I know Althea runs your communications um, now, but she did other stuff in addition to that. And then Kutnikba, um did, is like your program person, right? Like your right hand, like she is like in there. I think it's important for philanthropy to know and hear how an organization goes from being so like, um, like everybody in the trenches working to growing to a staff of 17 and how hard that is, right? Because you said it like, it was like, oh, this is what we did and three of us and the four of us and now the 17 of us, right? But I think it's important for folks on the other side to understand that that's just not a thing that you could put in a proposal and just be like, oh, we're running this and it's fine. Like, what does it take to grow a staff and do the work in that way? Yeah, thank you for that. And I, and I, you know, I never want to be light about it, but you know, there's been, you know, we've been at this, with my leadership almost six years now. And again, yeah. we were bringing on folks who were able to help us build out uh, an organization, right? Cause again, started as an initiative. So when people hear we've been around for 10 years, they think we've been operating as an organization. Right. For 10 years. But really we were an initiative that was ran by a bunch of different organizations that I've mentioned and then city folks trying to make sure things were moving. Uh, so when we came on, we had to come on and continue that work but also add the programmatic stuff that you talked about, the infrastructure, uh, that you talked about and build relationships with philanthropy to really support this work. You know, Casey Family Programs has been a long-term supporter, continue to support the work. Uh, but we had to build other relationships and we had to get people to understand what this is uh, and what it and how their work and what they do intersect with it, right? So a lot of people, when you hear violence prevention and you hear about gun violence, a lot of foundations don't believe they play or they have a role to play in that in that work. 
Uh, when we're talking about it, we're talking about public safety as a comprehensive strategy, which includes education, which includes housing and employment. So we want mayors and we want foundations and other folks to see the bigger picture. Uh, but it took a while, right? It took a while, took some missteps, but it took us a minute to get our footing and really build out more relationships with foundations and funders to really understand why they should support this, what their support will look like. And some of it is as we got to build capacity to really do that, right? So we've been able to meet some funders who understand that we need flexible dollars that are not just about programmatic, but it is about building the capacity of the organization, which is why we can go from the number that I talked about to 11 and then to 17 is because we've been able to build relationships with funders and partners who are not just given resources, but are actually partners at the table having a conversation with us and seeing what it would really take for us to reach that goal that we have, right? To get to a reduction of homicides in, by 20, uh, in half by 2025 takes a lot of energy and resources and time. And you gotta have the right support to do that, right? So we gotta have a lot of conversations with folks around what does it take? Uh, and what do we need to get to that? Because we still believe it's doable. Uh, we, we, we saw an uptick in violence and the homicides over the last couple of years. Uh, when we had our convening in Hampton uh, in 2019, we actually had some good news uh, that we had seen, you know, it went from 14 to 12. We still were losing way too many young people, but we were actually doing work that was saving lives. You could see that if you do this work and you do it, Consistently, you can start seeing the numbers trending in the way that we want them to, not fast enough, but they are at yeah. least trending. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, I think uh, the, the thing I would want folks to know is that, one, we took our time growing, uh, one, because of resources, but two, because we just had to figure out some stuff. And then when we put together our growth plan and really started thinking about it, it just aligned with, I think, some of the conversations we were having with some of our funding partners. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And I appreciate it. I just want to lift up something that you said when you saw that change from 14 homicides to 12, right? And again, just, I'm talking to philanthropy now, right? So sometimes like moving a needle like that is so much bigger than anybody, even if you'd moved it to one, right? From 14 to 13, that would have been so significant. And I know sometimes on the philanthropy side, we tend to ask for like all these metrics and all of these evaluations where it's been hard to quantify when it comes to real human lives. But the fact that that's actually a huge deal, right? And be able to make that, I just wanna mark that, you know, as such a success that Cities United has had um, and how important it is for folks on the philanthropy side to be cognizant of what success looks like for each organization and be able to have those conversations with them instead of just you know, saying like, oh, these are the metrics that we use. How do you fill in? How can you fill these in, right? So I'm not, I'm not I know you didn't say that. I'm just saying that for you. Right? I'm just saying that out loud, right? I think it's important to no. name. <laughs> uh, 100% and, and to move from 14 to 12 means 730 more lives are wow. saved each year, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think about numbers and you think about metrics, but you know, for us, that's still not enough, right? There's still more work to do. There's more people to bring to the table and there's more movement to happen, which and which means more resources need to come and, and, and be directed to the right work and to the right places. Uh, but I do appreciate that. And I think that's a thing that we constantly got to say to folks when they when we go to folks and we start talking about the work, they always ask, so what's the numbers? 
what 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 will we see in a year? And it's not going to take right. a year, right? We 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 have underfunded this kind of work, and we have underfunded supporting Black and Brown communities for centuries. And now all of a sudden, uh, uh, a grant cycle is not going to be the thing to change, <laughs> right? So we need long term partnerships when we're talking right. about this, which is one of the things we try to do when we're having conversations. Is that we will take you know, a one-year grant, but that's not going to help us really get to the outcomes. It's all helpful, but it's not going to be the thing that changes, right? So we need you to be with us for three to five years when we're having this conversation because we're in this for the long haul. And if we're really talking about saving lives, then we got to put in the right kind of resources to do that work. And some of it's got to be so flexible and so non-traditional because of the work that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know a lot of funders in this space and, you know, people that are watching this now and folks that I'm in conversations with are always trying to move those two needles, right? The one of multi-year support, you know, and the importance of that, especially when we're doing this kind of work. And then, and that being general op support, right? If we can tackle those two things, like stop trying to pick on a program, like, oh, I like this, this is cute. I, you know, I wanna fund that. You know, give general operating support and let the organization who knows what it's doing and knows what communities they need to be in and how they need to serve, decide where the money goes. So those are two big pushes that me and many folks have been working on for a while. So I'm glad you did name that. So my next question is the question I think that organizations, corporations, for-profit, nonprofits have been getting and will be getting for the next year and a half, okay? So bear with me, it's a question that everybody wants to know the answer to. How has Cities United been impacted by the pandemic and how have your services needed to or have changed? Yeah, so that is a question we get uh, on every application, on every report, on everything, because it, it, it's such a huge shift and it's such a huge thing that has, uh, that has not only touched this country, but the world. Uh, so we get it and we understand it. And it actually has a, as a, as a moment for us to really reflect on what it is and what has happened, right? Uh, so Cities United, again, we work in communities. Uh, we're headquartered in Louisville. We got folks in Dallas, Hampton, Virginia, and also in Seattle. But we are in, again, I said over 130 cities. So we like to be on the ground. We like to be in partnership. We like to be there. So when COVID hit, it shifted our model. Uh, and put all of us like the rest of the world in a virtual model where we could not really be on the ground and really get a sense of what the work was, right? We can talk to folks online, we can still get the work done, but part of our model is that we like to go to the communities that are most impacted by community violence when we're on the ground so that we can get a sense and understanding of what's going on, talk to the people uh, and talk to the young people and really spend time. So that shifted our model. Uh, and, and gave us uh, uh, another opportunity to figure out how to engage cities and how to engage community partners. Uh, but I do think, you know, that that personal touch and that uh, breaking bread and, and spending time with folks was missed. And that's important to the work. This kind of work is about building relationships and having strong relationships where folks trust you to give them the best advice around how to move a strategy in their city. But also not only that, the mayor and their teams trust you, but the community members got to trust you too, right? And it's hard to build that trust online with them. Uh, uh, it also, you know, shifted all of our programmatic stuff. Even, you know, we 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 talk uh, a lot about young leaders and put young leaders in spaces and making sure that as we work in cities that they're engaging our young leaders. So we created a young leader fellowship 
uh, that we run every year. And we've been running the, the last two years have been virtual. Uh, where they used to have three to four trips inside of their fellowship where they would meet up, get to know each other, but also get to see their country and historical pieces of their country. Uh, the last time we were able to travel with one of our fellowship, uh, the one before this year, the uh, second cohort, uh, before COVID actually shut everything down, they were able to go to Montgomery and Birmingham and really get a sense of not just how balance is impacting us today, but the over centuries, right? How this country was built on uh, and has continued to uh, perpetrate violence on black folks uh, since we've been here. So it's just, a, so it just shifted all of that. It's not that folks are still not getting good programs and good information. It's just that we can't build the bonds the way that we used to. And we can't really get to go see the cities and the country uh, the way that we like to really form a, a, a stronger, assessment of what's happening on the city and give them a good sense of how to move forward. Uh, but like I said, we shifted like everybody else. We've made it work. We've actually been able to be in more cities during the pandemic oh, wow. because, of, because of the virtual world, right? So we can have yeah. multiple conversations in one day with five to six cities uh, and get a lot of work done. But it, it, it takes a little bit of time. And it's and it, uh, still, uh, and even our convening, we, we've had a convening since 20. 14, I believe. Uh, the first one was in New Orleans. Uh, and, and the last one we had was in 2019 in person uh, and, and Hampton. And then we were supposed to have the one here in Louisville in 2020. Uh, and then we were supposed to, and we're, so we still hosted it as Louisville as the backdrop, uh, but it was all virtual. And we've decided to do this year virtual. So it just shifted those kind of things. Uh, but the work continues to move. And I think uh, uh, we are able to touch more cities. Uh, but still there's a little thing missing and, and we can't wait for the world to open back up so we can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And I have a follow-up question that I, I think you answered it mostly and you, but I just want to <laughs> bring it out um, is so what changes you think you're going to keep post pandemic, right? Like when the world opens back up, it sounds like maybe some of the, the virtual opportunities so she can engage more cities, but is there anything else? Or if you want to speak more to that and like, what do you think you're going to keep that happened because of, the state we were in, but now we're open again. Or we'll yeah, I think we'll continue to do a hybrid model, right? We'll do a lot of conversations of the gathering and getting to know folks online. But again, there's still nothing like being on the ground with the mayor, with the teams, with the community members. Uh, so that'll pick back up. Uh, but I think we, we've we learned that we can do some stuff virtually where we don't have to get on planes all the time. Uh, so we'll figure that out as well. But I think, you know, with the work that we do and, and the relationships that we build, uh, travel will come back when, it, when it's open. Yes. Uh, uh, but we will be able to be a little bit more, uh, uh, I don't even know what the word, right word is, uh, balanced about it, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, for a while, I felt like I was on the road all the time. Uh, <laughs> and I've realized I don't need to be on the road all the time. Sometimes I want to be. Uh, right. I don't need to be. So how we how we manage that, I think, is going to be important. Uh, and also, you know, COVID shifted uh, how we we've always wanted to be a team, take care of our team. But COVID taught us that there's also more ways and more opportunities to do that. Right. So we have decided uh, as a team that we don't work on the second and fourth Fridays of the month. Right? Awesome. And we're okay. not asking folks to do 10 hour days to make up for that. It's just that we really know that our people and our teams are our most important resource. So we wanna make sure 
that we give folks time to take that time down, right? Okay. We also took some time during COVID to look at our pay scale and say, mm-hmm. are we paying, a, we, we always believe we were paying a fair wage and a fair salary, but look, comparing it's like, what does it look like as, as a national organization to get to a place where our folks are, are, are actually taken better care of even with their salaries, right? So just thinking through all of that stuff over the time, we've been able to do better. Uh, there's probably more that we can do, uh, but we really wanna make sure that we are not only hiring the best team, but also making sure that they have the best resources that they need. And sometimes that's just sleep and rest, right? So, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Time for that too, yeah. Oh, well, come on, Cities United. I love a human-centered <laughs> team. That's right. You take care of your people and your people can take care of the work, right? And it's important yeah. for us to give back in those ways and not just because it's tiring work what you do, right? right? And it takes a lot. And the people who do this love it. Right. And when you love what you do, they say when you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. But truth be told, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life, you also don't party or sleep one day either, right? Because <laughs> you're constantly working because your life is your work. Um, so I appreciate that. And, and it's good to, that's good to hear. Um, so we know we have a lot of great organizations um, that are doing work with Black boys and men. Um, and they're doing amazing work. And I know you collaborate with some and you mentioned like working with Sean Dove and, um, and the work that he still continues to do even after the campaign for Black Male Achievement has sunset. Um, but can you tell us like, what's the secret sauce with Cities United? Like what makes you different or that's the different thing, you know, that you guys do that maybe other organizations don't do and not because, you know, right. there's something wrong with that. It's just that you have a different, you know, a different swag. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons, a number of things that we could talk about. One is that our headquarters is here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Louisville's home for a lot of the folks on the team. It was home for me. It still is home for me. Uh, and when I took the job, it was clear to me, it, it was I wanted to be here in Louisville because one, I used to work for Mayor Fisher here, helped him build out his office for violence prevention, which was called Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods, and really worked through this process of how you do this in the city. So we, we understood that. And one of the things also that has helped us do is we got a unique relationship with the city here that allows us to do some innovative stuff. Uh, one is Russell, a place of promise. Uh, it's a partnership that we have with the city, uh, and it was uh, supported through a grant from the Keenan Charitable Trust. Uh, but it really is we we are located in a historic black neighborhood in Louisville, and we spend a lot of time in that in that space. Uh, so this allows us to uh, do some incubation. So we're incubating this uh, this model around how do you create black wealth in a community without displacement, right? So. Uh, Russell was in the verge of a lot of investment coming in. And one of the things we saw is that we wanted to create a space where investment can come in without displacing the families and the businesses that have been there. So we created this thing called Russell Place of Promise, which Cassandra from our team helps lead. Uh, And it really is around how do you work in partnership with residents to create their voices to say, this is what we want investment to look like in our city. Uh, And we also believe that if we can get a city, a neighborhood or a community that has like a Russell that had dealt with a number of homicides and shootings and redlining and urban renewal to get it to a place where it's economically stable uh, and folks are owning homes, owning businesses and thriving, we would also see the violence go down in that community as well, right? We would see the number of young people who are hurt uh, shift and change. Uh, So one that helps us be unique is that we get to be in a city where we can 
incubate these models, think about these models, and then say, how do we then take those across the country, right? So Russell Place of Promise has been operating since 2018. During COVID, we were able to still support the neighborhood in a way that we were able to partner with some other folks and give out food baskets, uh, give out uh, information for kids, like kits for kids to come and get so that they can go home and do some reading and writing and studying and coloring. Uh, and just created a space where residents could still come in, you know, of safe distancing with masks and all of that, but able to uh, get what they need and resources they need. So that's one thing. Uh, and then we got another model that we, we've done here in Louisville and Lexington that's around the Civic Engagement Fellowship, uh, which was really taking a, so it was creating a pipeline of young Black men between ages of 22 and 26 who had uh, uh, been in jail. Uh, so our job was, our, our motto was this, let's stop uh, uh, warehousing our talent and let's put these young men in the pipeline because one of the things we also know is that most city governments are not really, really good at creating a pathway for young black men or women to really be in leadership. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we created a pathway with this fellowship where these young men, again, a relationship we had with the Keenan Charitable Trust, would go through a 16 to 24 month fellowship where they would get a full-time salary, be city employees, and get to understand the inner workings of a city. Because the goal for us was to say, if we do this and we get this right, within 10 years, you will have a pipeline of young black men ready to take on leadership roles, not just work in city government, but take on leadership roles. Uh, and then again, we believe that's a model that if we get it right here in Louisville and Lexington, we can take it across the country. Uh, the last thing I'll say about what makes us unique and different is that we understand that we sit in a number of spaces when you talk about this work. One is around violence prevention, and there's a whole field of folks who's doing community violence intervention and prevention, uh, and we play a role there. Two, when the Black men and boys and the boys and men of color space came about, we were also right in the middle of that. And then when you think about the population uh, who we're focused on, we fit in the opportunity use space, right? So we move between all three of those spaces, understanding that the young men and boys and the communities that they work from fall in all of that. And how do you create a space to make sure that uh, those young men and their families are succeeding? Uh, because there's so many opportunities that come with opportunity use, right? There, there's yeah. a lot of resources. So we gotta make sure that we're paying attention to that. The boys and men of color space, there was a lot of space there. Uh, but we've always been clear that this is about young black men because that's what data tells us. But then also the last space is that uh, violence prevention, again, uh, and all three of those go hand in hand. So I think that unique spot right there is what makes our sweet spot is we pay attention to all three of those. Uh, yes. And we come into a space understanding that uh, there's, there's, there's tools and resources from all three of those fields that can really help us move our agenda. Awesome. Well, two things. Um, the first is, am I too old to join the fellowship? I need all of that that you just talked about. So I'm here for it. I need all of that training. So that's the first thing. You don't have to answer that. You can spare my feelings and not answer that. I got you. I got you. <laughs> um, but the second is that, you know, again, what we've been doing in philanthropy, and I see my colleagues moving towards, and, you know, and I know many on, on this that are looking at this conversation um, are also thinking about is how we take you know, understanding that there is a niche, right? And there is an importance to focus on black boys and black mm -hmm. men. And then that needs to be some, a niche in philanthropy, right? Yeah, that being that, and definitely hold that there. 
but then also how do we, like you were saying, put this work throughout the different other portfolios that speak to opportunity for you, that even speak to climate change or climate justice, environment, food security, poverty alleviation, disaster relief. Like there's all these different spaces that we don't have to just pigeonhole the work, the work that you're doing, the work of um, black boys and men into like this racial sort of circle, right? That we can figure out other buckets to put it to. And that also helps it to be better resource. Yeah. So, and I think that. it just started with understanding that black men and boys are human uh, and anything that's happening in this country has an impact on them. Right. Yes. We know that majority of the communities that these young men are coming from are dealing with pollution. Right. Yeah. We know there's factories there. We know there's the railroads going through there. We know that they were built on floodplains and all of this stuff. Right. Because that's yeah. where they put black folks at. Right. So I think one thing we got to just realize is that black men and boys have the same experience well not the same they experience some of the same things in this country that others do uh, and that we cannot just pigeonhole them in criminal justice reform and violence prevention right so we've got to make sure that if we're talking about creating safe healthy and hopeful communities for young black men and boys that we're paying attention to the holistic picture right one of the things we try to tell cities when we go in and do our work not try to we tell cities is that we want you to make sure that you're not only paying attention to those young people, but to the family and to the communities that they live in, right? So if we want to get this right, we've got to make sure that we think about these young men and boys and their wholeness, and we got to think about their families and their communities and create strategies, right? So when you talk to philanthropy, a lot of philanthropy and a lot of folks, and I, I do appreciate and I get what you're saying, that folks are moving in a different direction, folks are trying to be innovative, which is why I'm thankful that we're talking about Black philanthropy 10 years in, uh, because that means a lot of Black folks are influencing what's happening. And then if you see a lot of leadership too changes, right, of Black folks sitting in leadership chairs and helping to influence uh, what philanthropy does. But I think philanthropy all has for traditionally come up with a strategy. And if you don't fit into these boxes, they can't figure out how to fund you. And if I come and talk to a philanthropist about violence prevention work or, or, or gun violence prevention, and they're saying, well, we do education. I'm like, cool, education <laughs> supports my mission and vision as I try to make sure that young black men and boys are safe, healthy, and hopeful. They need a quality education. That's right. Because most of these young men that we're talking about, if you go back and look at their educational structure and system, it did not do well for them. Yeah. Right. They, they did maybe not have finished and maybe dropped out. So and then if you also if I go to you, you say, well, we're thinking about housing. Cool. I need to be able to get housing, stable housing for these young men and their families. So this fits, too. I'm talking about third grade reading. Cool. These young men are families. They got kids. Right. So you can't get away from who these folks are. Uh, but but at the, these these boxes have made it easy for philanthropy to say no over yeah. time. And I'm hoping exactly. that folks are now saying that we got to look at the whole picture and what I do as a philanthropy is actually public safety work. Mm. It's life-saving work, right? So when I come every day I come to work, I'm doing something that contributes to creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities or public safety in a different model. Uh, and I think philanthropy needs to be at the forefront of that and really pushing that agenda. Oh, awesome. So you actually answered my next question, which is going to be like, how does... <laughs> how can philanthropy support you, right? And so how is it, um, what should we know about like your program? Like how can we make different changes? You know, how would you feel better supported 
by philanthropy, right? And I think you addressed some of that, but if you have anything else that you wanna to touch on, so I think opening up the portfolios and like taking away some of these lines is really big and key. And like I said, people, I, I, I heard you when you were just like, okay, I hear you that you say these conversations are happening. I haven't felt any of it yet, but I'm glad it's happening. So I heard that. Don't think that that's slip out. I heard that. But, no, no, no. So. And, but I know we're having these conversations, but what anything else that you think that we need to know and do faster, I guess, yeah. is also the thing, right? So I think what I would go to, one, I do... Uh, it was not a hundred percent. I hear you and not believe it. I do believe okay. you. I've been in those conversations with a okay. lot of folks who I know in the philanthropy world who have been great partners of ours, right? So when right. I think about who, because uh, I again, the beauty of the work for me is not that I get a check from philanthropy, but that I get a relationship, right? So yeah. most of the folks who we are in partnership with philanthropy call on the regular. We talk about stuff. We spend time together. We plan and they ask, right? What are you looking to do? What does it look like next? So I, I wanna be clear about that. Folks who take the time and have relationships, we get a lot of good stuff together, right? Yeah. But those who are such a strickler for the boxes are the ones who say no quickly and don't even have the real conversation with me, right? So one, I think what philanthropy can really do, and a friend of mine, Dorian Burton, used to say this all the time, it's just gotta get in proximity to the work that you're talking about. Right. You've got to go and be next to the people who you're working for and the people who are doing the work. So you got to be in partnership. Right. So what we like to do with philanthropy is really try to get them to see what we're doing and feel it, touch it, understand it. Right. If that's do a conversation over and over again through videos or go on the ground with me. Right. Mm -hmm. Go in a city with me. Go on a tour with me. Go see stuff with me. Right. Uh, one of the things when we were working with Keenan. As, uh, as Dr. Burton, Dorian would say to his board, let's go see what we're going to fund. If that's yeah. inside of the jails, let's go inside of the jails. If that's in a school, let's go into the school. If that's in a neighborhood, let's go into the neighborhood. But you've got to be, and this is not just about those who work in the, in the offices of philanthropy, but this is about their boards too, right? We've mm -hmm. got to get in proximity and, and in a relationship with the folks who we say we want to see a difference for. Uh, because if not, we're going to continue to make up all this stuff that we believe work and never really get to the things that do work, right? So one is just, if you see somebody that you're interested in or organization or a body of work, research it and find the black and brown folks who are doing that work. Because another thing philanthropy is really, really good at is giving money to big white led organizations who then subcontract with folks like us <laughs> uh, when you can actually come directly to us, right? So get you to understand who's doing, <laughs> who's doing the work, who's, who's the partner, right? Because one of the things when uh, when uh, the new administration came into office, the Biden-Harris administration came into office, one of their first conversations around gun violence was with white-led organizations. They brought in Gifford, Everytown, Brady, all folks who we work in partnership with, so it's not a slight to any of them. Right. But we were, there's a group of us in the Black and Brown uh, Peace Coalition Consortium who reached out to the White House and said, we would like to have a conversation as well. Right. Don't forget that there's these folks out here doing the work. And I think that's the same thing with funders. Right. We've got to understand that the work in the table is a big table and we've got to make sure that we've been inclusive as possible and actually going to those folks who have lived experience, who have real relationships on the ground mm -hmm. uh, and who knows how to maneuver a little bit different. And uh, just to be fair to the white led organization that I named, they're all working better and in partnership, right? So I'm not, right. again, 
But I just think it's a poem philanthropy to be a dig a little deeper mm-hmm. uh, and be willing to go and, and spend time with the leaders who are doing the work at the national level, state level, and the ground level to really get an assess uh, uh, I mean, of who and how they should spend their dollars. Awesome. Okay. That was very helpful. Thank you. And I think a lot of people heard what you're saying and hopefully we can go back into our institutions and make some of that happen. That's right. Uh, focusing on, if you're focusing on an issue that you say or you think actually um, is impacting communities of color, Black communities specifically, yeah. disproportionately, then why wouldn't you go to those organizations directly in order to serve? Absolutely. So um, last question, um, and that's just like, what are your two maybe three priorities for Cities United over the next three years? One, we've got to build more capacity, right? So I've got to expand the team. Uh, We're already looking at what that looks like and feels like, right? So we've got to go from this 17 to a a different number. We had 25 in our mind, but it might need to be more uh, to really get to where we're trying to get to. We also need to be able to, uh, a priority for us is how do we support more community-based organizations, right? We work in partnership with mayor's offices. Uh, but we also know that mayor's offices are not the ones who are almost always doing the work. There's tons of community partners in, in, on the ground in cities uh, who need support. Uh, I know you all know, and those who are in philanthropy know that we've got tons of Black-led organizations who are doing interruption work who need support uh, and need real support in real time. So that's a priority for us. And then the, another priority would be to make sure that we continue to build up the young leader work that we do, right? From our fellowship to the Young Leader Congress to the Young Leader Network uh, uh, and moving those. And I'm gonna add one more just because uh, <laughs> the priority would be to really uh, uh, build out these incubation things or these uh, our place-based strategies that we're doing in Louisville and, and expand them across the country. Uh, the Russell Place of Promise work is very uh, promising, uh, no pun intended. And then also, uh, uh, the, the Civic Engagement Fellowship, I think, is a model that could change the course of this country and the leadership of this country if we could get that right uh, and, and, and start emptying out our jails that are, have been sucking up too much of our talent for the last little while. Amen to that. Cool. Thank, thank you so much, Anthony. So we have so many questions that are flowing in from the chat, right? And so we're going to come back and... Um, talk to you a little bit about that and you know get some of these questions in but before we do that we just want to run to the video we've been hearing everything that you've been talking about but we want folks to actually see some of the work firsthand through this video so we're gonna just run that and then we'll come back hi welcome back thank you all um i'm sure you enjoyed the video just as much as i did cities united is doing such amazing work and anthony again just Thank you for all the work that you're doing and your team. Like you have an amazing team. I've been able to chat with most of them and it's amazing the work that you're doing. Um, so like I mentioned, we do have some questions from the chat. You know, we have like a couple of minutes, we have like 15 minutes left and we just want to get some of those in. Um, so the first is, as you look back on your 10 years, what are some organizational partnerships both in Louisville and nationwide that been, have been instrumental to your success? Wow, there's so many, right? And again, <laughs> let's be clear, it's been six years for me. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that the, 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 the way that this started with that strong partnership from Casey Family Programs, Black Male Achievement, uh, uh, National League of Cities, and, and the two mayors and their teams, 
-hmm. was the foundation of what partnership was going to mean to this work, right? So Casey Family Programs is still there, still a strong partner. Uh, uh, National League of Cities is still a partner, still in operation. And Sean is still on the board and still partners with uh, us with the Corporation for Black Male Achievement. But we've had multiple partners and and relationships that, you know, I, I would be if I missed any, I would be sad. So I don't want to go through naming because there's just so many, right? We we truly believe that we can't get this work done without partnerships, right? So we constantly are leaning in on our partners, even nationally or our, 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 uh, locally to get this work done, right? So, you know, MBKA with the Obama Foundation, uh, our friends over at CLASP uh, has been a key partner when it comes to policy work. Uh, the folks at Frontline Solution, uh, Executive Alliance. So, I mean, again, there are just so many partners who have been here with us the long haul. Uh, and you think about uh, the violence prevention folks, you know, Live Free, Life Camp, uh, Community Justice Action Forms. I mean, again, it's just so many people that we can name uh, that we talk to on a day-to-day, uh, weekly and monthly that have helped us get to where we get where we are. So again, it's just a key piece to have those partners. Uh, but I can never name all of them for you. Uh, <laughs> no, that's but, fine. You know. I, think, I think you did well. Like you made a lot <laughs> over the top of the dome. So I think you actually did really well. So I just want to remind folks to please, please, please put your questions in the chat and we'll get to as many as possible. Um, but we have another one that's from, I guess, a novice um, in the field of philanthropy. And the question is, how can someone new, a novice in the field, help? What are the best steps to make impact in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think the best impact uh, to uh, for somebody who's new to philanthropy, uh, uh, again, is just getting to know who who's in the field that you're where you're funding, right? Get to know the people that are the black led organizations and the black folks who are leading the work who are and spend time with them so you can get educated. Uh, and get really, really grounded in the work that you're going to be doing, uh, and really spend that time there. Uh, one of the things I loved about, uh, and still do, is my dude Dorian, is that he would just go hang in cities uh, and get to know the people where they were going to be funding, right? So if you're going to be funding somewhere, get to know those folks. Uh, go go spend time, go hang out, uh, and just say, what are you doing, and how can I be helpful, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the last thing I'll say somebody new is, uh, and into the field is really build your advocacy on because program managers and folks who are program folks who are on the front line of philanthropy are our true advocates, right? We would not be in any of the rooms that we're in if we did not have a good program manager who understood us, asked all the questions that they were going to need, and then went in the room and advocated for us uh, 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 until they were able to get us the resources that they thought we needed, right? So being a good advocate and, and, and learning those who you are going to be funding, I think would be the number two things to do. Awesome. Awesome. And, and what would you, what would you say are some of your biggest points of impact over however long, right? If you, when, if you want to start six years ago, 10 years ago, last year, but what are some of your biggest points of impact? So, you know, I think one we talked about, you know, us and a lot of other people helped move the needle mm-hmm. of going from 12 to from going from 14 to 12 uh, in, in those years. I also think a big part of our impact is on our young leader work, right? Really bringing young folks into the fold, uh, not just in the fellowship. One of the things we do is after each fellowship, two of those young leaders are then put on our advisory board. Uh, 
and are brought in that way. And then we create more space for them. So I think this idea of create space for young leaders is very important to us and it's been an impact for us. But also think, you know, as you think about our work and you think about the number of cities who have started looking at this comprehensive approach to community violence about prevention and creating plans and strategies, uh, we've seen a lot of that happen. Uh, we created a roadmap academy that uh, Quinequa used to run and now Sanithia will uh, that around peer-to-peer -peer support uh, and bringing people together. Uh, but also we've been able to not only, you know, get the resources uh, to help us build in what we need, but also take money into communities, right? Uh, where philanthropies thinking about a certain city, uh, we are able to help them think about what that looks like and create a strategy there, right? So I think, you know, when you think about impact, there's so many different ways to talk about it and think about yeah. it. Uh, 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 but, you know, we've got to be able to tell that story and narrative, not just about the numbers, but about the wholeness, right? Because we believe that if we can get a, a good number of cities to reimagine and redefine what public safety is, again, we can change the course of what this country looks like uh, over the next 10 years about how we invest our dollars at the local level, but also how we uh, how we uh, create strategies and solutions to some of these issues that we're dealing with. So we're still in that mode. I would yeah. say one of the things that came out of pandemic that we're super uh, proud of and excited about is we released our reimagining public safety documented framework. Uh, mm. And a number of people on the team took the lead on pulling that together. And that has truly been a, a, a document that helped, helped us transform what it looks like and give people a good visual of what it really can move and, uh, and get us to. So a lot of different things that are impact that might not be the hard numbers that folks want to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's been a lot of impact. And just to be 100 percent, we would not be having this conversation at the national level with this current administration who we help with the Black and Brown uh, Gun Violence Consortium move them from 900 million hmm. uh, to a five billion dollar ask. Right. So when they were running and when they came into office. They were only looking at putting $900 million, which would have been the largest federal investment in community violence work. But when we got to the table with them, we asked them and encouraged them to move from this $900 million to this $5 billion, which mm -hmm. is now in part of the infrastructure bill, which is part now been a part of the budget that we now got to get folks to help us move that through. So when you think about impact, that's been at the local level, state level, and also at the federal level where you can see Cities United and our partners have made a real huge impact. Wow. Okay. And what are some of the challenges to this um, public safety messaging, right? Is it And where are the challenges coming from, if there are? So there, there's, there's challenges. Uh, and the big challenge really is, is that we as a country are so stuck on our current model. We believe that police, jails, and detention centers are the thing that keeps us safe. Uh, and we've got to shift that, right? We're not, uh, we need to move away from that model and say that the things that truly keep us safe are the housing, quality education, access to good paying jobs, transportation, access to quality healthcare, both physical and mental. Uh, so it, that's the mind, the, the mental model shift that we, that's hard for folks to make because we've yeah. been told for 400 years that police... <laughs> protect and serve right right and, right and they do protect a certain population right? right and that population is really really loud when it comes to a place when you're saying we could do something different so we've got to get folks to believe and, and understand and i think we're at that moment right i think with the loss of uh, 
Breonna Taylor, with the murders of Breonna Taylor and Dave McAtee and uh, George Floyd, we're having a different conversation around what it could look like. And we've got some cities who are taking bold stands. It's yep. New York, uh, the folks in Brooklyn mm -hmm. Center. There's a number of cities who have said to us, to themselves, we can create a different model, right? Uh, so I think that's the big challenge is that people have so stuck on this one model and the thing that we've been sold and told for so long uh, that it's hard for folks to shift from that. And with the numbers rising the way that they are, uh, mm -hmm. This country always reverts back to what's easy, uh, yes. not to the thing that's going to really get to the root cause of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have another question um, from the chat, and I'm, I'm going to be careful to read this question because I think it is so important and on point. So I'm going to look away for a minute to make sure I have this question straight. <laughs> um, <laughs> how can philanthropy up uplift the personal stories of impact while also holding true to any reporting data that may tell a different story. Yeah. Right? Like, isn't that, no, no. isn't that a good one? <laughs> it's a real good question. And I think, uh, I think, yeah, I, I think that we've got to be honest about the work. Uh, I, I think, you know, a big part of our work, which you talked about earlier without the uh, running our marketing and storytelling is really around telling those stories. There's mm -hmm. so many stories about these young people that are untold and unheard. Uh, uh, from the young people, right? I met a young cat uh, in uh, Newport News, Virginia that was walking around and we were in the, in, in the housing project and he came up and was just talking to us, had been shot 17 times, uh, uh, lived, of course, because he was talking to us, uh, but was really just saying to us, I just need a job, y'all. I, I have no place to work, right? And, and, and those are the kind of things that, uh, you know, when we hear them stories, it's like, how do we move to get this young cat a job so that he can do what he needs to do? But also if we don't and, and, and we lose him, because I think he ended up going to jail uh, a couple of a year or so later because we didn't do what we were supposed to do, right? And part wow. of what we didn't do what we were supposed to do is because the system is set up for this young man who has a background, no home, no address to not be able to find a job, right? We make it so mm -hmm. hard. So I think telling those stories, the personal stories, not only of those who overcome and make it, but the challenge in, uh, that we are dealing with and, and, and put that with the hard numbers, I think will help funders and other folks move differently, right? Because mm -hmm. I think it's the truth of what we're dealing with, right? Because we are not saving everybody, right? Because we as a country are moving not as a fast enough pace, right? We're not moving with a sense of urgency like we did with COVID. When COVID first hit, mm -hmm. uh, we understood that it was a public health crisis. We put all hands on deck. We, we moved resources around, but because we don't see the same thing with shootings and homicides, we're not moving in that direction. But I think, I think the stories matter, but I think yes. the honest stories matter. And it's not always the feel good stories. It's just the stories of the lives and, uh, and and the ups and downs that these young people go through, but also saying, because I think when you do that and you put the hard numbers there and then you look at your investment and you say, did we really truly put enough in to make the dent that we thought we wanted to make? Wow, yeah, yeah, that's, that's good, that's good. And so I think this question, this next question actually is a follow-up to your answer, which is, you know, how has, your work changed, you know, given the changing, um, the change in philanthropy, right? Due to the, the racial and ethnic issues and the change that philanthropy is making maybe a little slowly, 
has the work and how you do your work changed? Has like philanthropy been a little bit more receptive and open to the kind of things that you're bringing to your ethos and you know the language that you're using, or is it still the same? The same same. No, I think I think philanthropy is open. I think uh, uh, I think this summer and these last eighteen months, uh, again when we when Louisville lost with Breonna Taylor and Dave McAtee, and then. Minneapolis lost George Floyd and they were both murdered at the hands of, of police and law. They were all murdered at the, at the hand of the state. I, I think folks had to take a different look. Uh, and I think, and, and I'm hopeful that that different look had them in boardrooms changing their philosophy of how they give out dollars, right? Uh, uh, all the conversations that I have with folks seems that there's a shift, yeah. uh, but we've got to wait and see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe you can see that there was a shift. You know, the White House just rolled out their community violence intervention collaborative. Uh, and there were 14 to 15 funders. And a lot of those funders have never funded in this space before. Uh, so I'm interested to see how that relationship influences their portfolios. Uh, but people are at the table now. People are asking questions now. People are interested and this work, uh, and we've never been able to have this conversation, which is why, you know, you think about the theme of our convening is that we're made for this moment, right? This is a moment yeah. in time that we have to maximize all of the work that Cities United and our other partners have been doing for the last, way beyond the last 10 years, right? There's a lot of folks who have been at this work for 30, 40 plus years. Uh, we're still kind of new to the table, uh, to the work, but there's a moment in time in history right now that we need to maximize. And I think philanthropy can come alongside what the federal government's doing with their American rescue dollars, because they're encouraging folks to use those dollars for violence prevention and other work. And we're encouraging all of our cities to set aside five to 10% of those dollars to really focus in on building the infrastructure. But it's gonna take philanthropy to be at the table with them too, right? So I just think we're at a moment in time and where investment in this vision can really matter. Awesome. Awesome, thank you for that. So we're getting close to time. We have like two minutes left, but I wanna take this opportunity to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the convening, the upcoming convening. You know, you mentioned the theme, yeah. um, just like how folks can get involved. I don't know if registration's available yet, but like just talk to us a little bit about the convening and what your plans are there. Yeah, absolutely. One, for folks just to stay in the loop, please follow us on social media, Cities United, as at Cities United on all of the social media platforms. You can also email us at info at citiesunited.org, uh, or you can email Anthony at citiesunited.org, either way. Uh, but our, we are hosting our, uh, I think this is the eighth convening. Uh, don't give me the lie, but I think it's the eighth. Uh, <laughs> we were going to, we are doing it in partnership with Denver and Mayor Hancock in Denver. Uh, where we really bring all of our, our our network together to really spend a couple of days really thinking about the work, looking at the work, celebrating the work, but also casting a vision forward, which is why our theme, as I said, is made for this moment, investing in the vision. Uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time and usually and when we do our convening, we like to showcase the city that, that we're in. So folks will get a chance to do some site visit, virtual site visits. Uh, uh, online, they'll get to hear from the city and the work that they're doing. Uh, but then they'll also get to hear from our network of uh, folks who are doing work uh, and bringing in different resources and things for folks to take advantage of. And like I said, the last one we did in person was in 2019. We were in Hampton. I think we had over 350 people come in. And it really is a time for our network to 
it's almost like a family reunion. It's almost like a revival. There's all of these things that happen uh, at the, we celebrate birthdays together. We cry together. Uh, we, we spend time together. Uh, but one of the things you'll hear Mayor Nutter say is he does not go to any other convening that has that many young people at it. Uh, and not only young people at it, but young people leading the space and holding the space. Uh, also, one of the things you will see come out of there is the, at this year's convening, we'll put out a policy brief. Uh, mm. We usually release different resorts, uh, resources and documents that you can also go on our online to find some of our resources. Uh, but we really try to make sure that that's a space not only for learning and sharing, but also for re renewing uh, uh, of the work and recommitment to the work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anthony. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Cities United during this, you know, Black Philanthropy Month. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to be reaching out to you because it's just such amazing work happened. And I just want to end with just one plug for Philanthropy Unbound. We are doing our Philanthropy 100 um, again this year. It's going to come out in December. Nominations will be closed tomorrow. So please um, it should be in the chat where you can go to check out how to nominate somebody for philanthropy 100. That's the top 100 philanthropists and nonprofits, uh, individuals, corporations, and foundations. And last year, Cities United was on the list. So <laughs> nominate folks for this year. Thank you all for joining. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you next year. <laughs> Thank you, Renee. Thank you, Anthony. The road ahead of us will not be easy or comfortable, but we must keep pressing forward. We will need bold leadership at all levels, not only to reimagine public safety, but redefine and create new systems that keep us all safe, healthy, and hopeful. I want to give a special shout out to our sponsor, Levi Strauss and Company. As a global iconic leader, Levi Strauss and Company knows that what they do and say matter. That's why they have pledged to support gun violence prevention efforts by providing grants to nonprofits who are working to end gun violence across the country. By elevating the stories of grassroots organizations who are successfully implementing violence prevention strategies in their communities and funding nonprofits who use digital tools and platforms to empower and lift up the voices of youth activists, Levi's believe that we can counter the gun violence epidemic in this country and make communities around this nation safer. To learn more about their goals, please visit their website at levistrauss.com. That's L-E-V-I-S-T-R-A-U-S-S dot -S com.